0: All righty, well, let's find our way to the book of Acts chapter 2. We will pick up where we left off last time. Um, As we continue to work through the book of Acts, there's a lot of things that we're going to be running into. One of them is going to be this transition into a new age. Um, We have been dealing with the uh, nature of the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures, and um, up to this point, Most of what we've been dealing with has to do with uh, the Holy Spirit addressing specific uh, and or temporal needs, but in all ways, bending everything towards life. In the New Age to come, he's doing the exact same thing, but he's going to be doing it worldwide. It's not going to be relegated only to a single area. And it's going to be focused not on, uh, like with the story of Samson or something, where where the Holy Spirit is involved in salvation, but they're temporal salvations, like he's freeing them from slavery again, or he's taking them out of a situation, raising up a deliverer, a judge, whatever the case may be, you know, uh, where the Holy Spirit would come on Samson and then uh, he'd pick up a jawbone of a donkey and slay a thousand men, you know, that that kind of, those types of feats of, of unique strength or of, of temporal um, uh, focus are no longer part of what the Holy Spirit does. We don't see anything like that. We see instead something entirely different. At the, at the dawning of this new age, we see the ministry of the, the apostles uh, finishing out the ministry of Christ. Remember, as we were going through the ministry of Christ, um, everything that Jesus did in his ministry with regards to miracles was the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one that was doing these things. And when Jesus Came and uh, had had a man uh, who was paralyzed get up and walk. That was the work of the Holy Spirit through the Son at the will of the Father. The entire Trinity at work in every single miracle. This is something that we see handed off to the apostles at the day of Pentecost. Uh, obviously, the very first thing they do is something that Jesus never did, and that is the speaking in tongues. The most one of the most um, let's say of the flashy. Of, of the things that the Holy Spirit ever does, is when, when one of the apostles would speak, out of their mouth comes a language they know, and to the ears of their hearers sinks into their soul in their natural tongue. That, that, is, that is miraculous on levels that we've never seen before. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we have anything even close to that. Nowhere in the ministry of Jesus do we have anything. In fact, not even just the ministry of Jesus, it's never happened. It's brand new. The only thing paralleling to it is the antithesis, the opposite of it, and that is the Tower of Babel, which means what we're dealing with is significant overarching focus. And it shouldn't surprise us so much that we see the Holy Spirit doing this, because in turning back uh, the, the timeline, shall you say, to undo the Tower of Babel, also the same thing that happened at Babel was what? What was the effect of nobody speaking the same language? What was the effect on where people lived. What happened? They scattered throughout the entire world. What is it the Holy Spirit's about to do with the apostles and his disciples? It's gonna spread them out throughout the world and bring this message to all of them. So if you think of the picture of Babel, everyone had one language, you know, this whole picture that's going on one language, one intent, one desire, and then. Uh, they, they had made up their minds to defy God and to rival him in certain ways. Um, that whole story is fascinating in and of itself. And so God says, well, fine, I come down, mix up your languages and spread you out through the world. You were supposed to fill the earth. You didn't. So you're going to do this. And so what happens is they all have their own languages. They're all in their own places. And God says, fine, I will take a single nation that doesn't exist, just a family. I will turn them into a nation Through that nation, this is Israel, through that nation, I will work my plan of salvation. I will show them what salvation looks like. I'll show them I'm more powerful than all the other gods that everyone else has made up. And through this people, I myself will come as a shepherd of my own people. Because my own leaders continually, continually turn away and feed themselves. And so the shepherd, the true shepherd of Israel shows up. This is the person of Jesus of Nazareth as the second person of the Trinity. And so we have this, this entire, if you will, uh, parenthetical happening of Israel, where God takes uh, people that wasn't a people, brings them out, doesn't say, you know, I'm choosing you because you're better. He says, actually, no, I'm not choosing you because you're better. You're stiff-necked people. And he he focuses on them all throughout history. And then after their flesh brings about... The Messiah. The Messiah then carries out these miraculous happenings, these works, and speaks these words that are just not from this earth. They're not normative. They're not natural. It's something that uh, supposes his own identity as God himself. And so God himself is walking around in flesh in Israel, and then we start getting these little flashes that there's an intention behind his ministry that's going to go well past the borders of Israel. You see him going and talking up to a Samaritan woman, something that no Jewish rabbi was to do or anything like this. And we see whispers of things going to happen. He speaks to a Syrophoenician woman, and he sees what faith she has is unlike anything he's seen in Israel. We, we just start to see these, these pieces of the gospel, and as the kingdom of heaven is being preached, What the Jewish people are looking for is a kingdom of earth. When are you going to reestablish David's throne here in Jerusalem? When are you going to make an earthly kingdom? And what does Jesus say over and over and over and over and over and over again? My kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't come in the way that the typical kingdoms of this world would imagine. But instead, it's going to be in a very different way. It's not going to be the people lay down their life for their king to protect him and his progeny. It's going to be the king lays down his life for his people. And so in that whole structure, when we see Jesus ascend, and then we see his apostles carry on a ministry, but then the ministry immediately shifts. Right? We saw things that Jesus was doing. You know, list out some of the miracles that Jesus did during his ministry. I already listed out one where he... Uh, has a man who was paralyzed, he was able to walk again. That's creation-level stuff. Sight to, the blind. Sight to the blind, right? Life to the dead, Life to the dead right? And Lazarus, right? Water to wine, something normal to something fantastic. Walking on water. Walking on water. Uh, uh, that's, that's a remarkable miracle, by the way. If we were spending more time in this class, we would have spent a long time on that miracle. Paralytic. It goes right back to Genesis 1-2. Paralytic to walk. Right? Paralytic to walk. We've got rebuking the wind and waves, telling the natural order to stop. We, and here's some that we don't really think about, exorcisms. He commands demons, and they are required to obey him. There, there's no option. When he tells them to go do something, and they're fully aware of this, because one, they know who he is, and they know the power of his words, and he said, don't, don't tell us to leave. Don't know, because we go to the abyss. You know how that works. I mean, we don't know how that works, but they apparently did. And he's like, and they're just like, oh, it's a, send us into those pigs. And he's like, okay, go into those pigs. Pfft, done. Get out of that person. Done. I'm legion for we are many. Done. With a word. No, no spells, no herbs, none of the other stuff that the Pharisees were doing that sometimes worked and other times didn't. With him, it was always a word and it was done. Compulsory obedience. Remarkable stuff. Right? Uh, the Multiplication of bread and fishes right? The feeding of the 5,000. You have so many aspects about what he's doing, how he's doing it. You even have places where he's able to, after his resurrection, pass through doors um, and still eat fish uh, and, and things like this. That, that's kind of remarkable stuff. We will see instances of it in the book of Acts. You see Philip after the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch blinks out of there and finds himself in Jerusalem. That's not normal stuff. Um, But there's changes, and and the changes are the most significant part of the story of the Holy Spirit in Acts. Because while we see, and while we will even see this morning, uh, a lame man restored unto the ability to walk uh, with Peter and John in the temple, we also see miracles like the speaking in tongues, things that didn't happen during Jesus' ministry. And so when a huge change like that happens, it really behooves us to sit up and take notice about what the changes are. What are the changes? What are they telling us about the job of the apostles? What are they telling us about the nature of this brand new age, which we've come to call the church age? And for the past 2,000 years, we have seen, at the beginning, extreme instances of the way that this stuff is depicted. None of them were the norm, obviously. Even before that first generation was out, there weren't miracles being done to heal, for instance, Timothy's sick stomach. And so Paul's telling him to take some medicine and you will feel better, right? So we, we see a waning down almost immediately of, of some of these things, but why are they there at the beginning? Why, why do we have the Holy Spirit breaking out in ways that are so unique? Again here, the speaking in tongues to all peoples in all of their own languages, what are they speaking of? The works, the miracles, the glory of God. The very message of Jesus Christ. And in fact, their response Uh, at the end of Peter's message is a significant place for us to uh, continue. So that's where we left off last time, uh, and we will will pick up there. Peter, if you remember, he quotes Joel, um, and he quotes David, and all of these things continually point to the fact that this was planned for over a thousand years. The coming of the Spirit was intentional, was planned, was meant, which means all that time of silence, of 500 years of silence from the Holy Spirit, was absolutely intentional. It was part of the story of Israel's history and part of salvation's plan, which, again, I will simply point out to the church today, the Holy Spirit has been silent outside of scriptures for almost 1,900 years. Is that part of his plan, too? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We should not be looking for answers outside of this. Um, When he quotes Joel, obviously the focus is on the Spirit of God, because that's what Joel was primarily focused on. We talked about that last time. And uh, he addresses this reality that, uh, you see in verse 32, after they had killed Jesus, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 32, This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Remember, the Holy Spirit was witness, Jesus was witness to the works of the Father, and now the disciples were going to be his witnesses, uh, as he tells them at the ascension, to Jerusalem, that's here, to Judea, that's the surrounding area, Samaria, something Jesus had also done, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, this goes right back to everything that Jesus had said during his ministry. There are, uh, And in, in that, he's quoting Isaiah, which Isaiah connects directly to the message of the Spirit as well, is that there is eyes that need to be used for seeing and ears that need to be used for hearing. Isaiah was sent out with his exact commission in Isaiah chapter 6. He was sent out to deliver a message to a people whose eyes would not see and whose ears would not hear. And God says, actually, it's the preaching of these things that will close their eyes and stop up their ears. Otherwise, they would turn and repent, and I would have to save them. And you can struggle in your theology with that, But it's not unique to Isaiah. Jesus says he spoke in parables for the exact same reason, so that only those whom he's saving would actually hear the message. You can wrestle forever in a day, but the reality is the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, and also the apostles all speak in one voice with this. There is a need for God to open the eyes of those who are blind. There is a need for God to open the ears of the deaf. There is no way that we can bring the gospel to bear on somebody's heart just by our own cunning. And so for the apostles, they're called to faithfulness to the message. Jesus himself did the same thing. Now, everyone was always confused with Jesus, wasn't he? We didn't talk about the parables much because the Gospels don't connect it to the ministry of the Spirit. But here, they're connected to the ministry of the Spirit. When when Jesus is speaking in parables, why is he doing that? He's teaching them about, typically, most of the parables are speaking about the kingdom of heaven. Almost all of them are kingdom of heaven is like unto this kingdom of heaven is like unto that. Why is he speaking in parables? They asked him even during it, why, why do you speak in riddles? why do you speak in parables but then when he got his disciples close together, he says to you I'll speak plainly right why, why speak in parables that's exactly correct. That, that is exactly correct. This thing, but the had to, have the to translate this thing was. They were literally almost physically given ears to hear. Yep. Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. I mean, connected the fact that they They weren't lying. They thought the guys were drunk. They couldn't understand because it was gibberish. The easiest thing to explain for me is that these people are speaking gibberish. Yep. And that's exactly how the apostles lay this out. Uh, They have a message to deliver, and they don't have any right to change the message just because the hearers reject it or ridicule them for it or any such thing. The results do not determine the, the efficacious nature of the message. Um, it, the, the message is effectual to all that God is calling. And that is exactly what they connected to. Uh, and they do it verbatim here in the middle of this. Look at verse 37. It's the very next paragraph. As soon as Peter stopped speaking, um, most of them who were standing there were cut to the heart. Um, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what are we supposed to do? We-, we just found out that we killed not only the ultimate prophet, we have killed God incarnate. God is not for us in this state. Brothers, what shall we do? Now, Peter does not return back and say, don't worry, God loves you, everything's fine, just go to synagogue on Saturday or Sunday. Nope. What does he say? Peter said to them, repent It's a change of mind. It's part of faith. Repentance and faith are always linked together throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Here's a brand new uh, church age application, but it had foreshadowings, didn't it? Repent and be baptized. What are we foreshadowing back to? Or what what are we reflexing back to? Who did a baptism of repentance? John, that was his entire point. Repent and be baptized. And so, what are we seeing? The same message John the Baptist brought, the same message Jesus brought, is the exact same thing that the apostles are going to teach. John taught in part, Jesus taught in full. The apostles are going to bring them both. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And now, here we have brand new church age promises. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now look at, look at this marvelous sentence that comes after this. For the promise is for you and for your children. That's very Old Testament language. The covenantal relationship through circumcision was the promise is for you and for your children. Therefore, you circumcise your sons on the eighth day, right? But they expand it completely. This promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The message will go out, and all those that God is calling to himself without distinction of where you are from Parthians, Medes, people from Mesopotamia, Libya, Egypt, it doesn't matter. They're all standing there. He says, it doesn't matter how far you are from Jerusalem or how close you are to Jerusalem. This message, this, this command is going out to everywhere in the world not just to you and to your children, but to all who are far off, all that the Lord calls to himself. That is a difficult thing for Jews to hear. All of a sudden, the focus of God and his obvious apostles and witnesses, the focus of them is not Jerusalem or Israel only. All of a sudden, we're having our world explode, something that the Old Covenant never made clear. In fact, Paul talks about The salvation of the Gentiles as the greatest mystery that God had not disclosed and had only disclosed in the wake of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The salvation of the Gentiles. Nobody expected it. Nobody asked for it. Nobody was looking forward to it. Nobody was praying for it. You can even see it on the prayer of one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Simeon, who was able to recognize Jesus. What was his main focus? Salvation has finally come. Consolation for Israel. Right? Is he wrong? No, he's not wrong. Is he seeing in part? Absolutely. Jesus was the consolation for Israel. Absolutely. And yet, he is the savior not only of Israel, but of the world. It's not just Lord of Israel, it's not just King of Israel, it's Lord of heaven and earth, King of kings. Lord of Lords. We're we're seeing this expansion to cover not just where they're standing now, not just connected to Passover to Jerusalem, but it's going to immediately continue out this message. And the Spirit is going to be hot on the trail of all of this, wherever they go. So Peter says to them, this is the breakdown of the whole message, because his entire message that morning on Pentecost was, all of this has happened and you're all at fault. The, a modicum of the sin of the world is that Jews that were in Jerusalem were responsible for killing Christ. But that was just an example of one of their thousands and thousands of sins. Sin is so insidious. All of you need to be repenting. All of you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And your sins need forgiveness because currently they are not. Now he's speaking to faithful Jews that have traveled to Jerusalem for Passover and for Pentecost. And he's telling them it's not good enough to be Jews. It's not good enough for you to have traveled here. It's not good enough for you to just recognize Passover and the Feast of Booths and New Moons and Sabbaths and going to synagogue. It's not enough. In fact, it's never been enough. Salvation, forgiveness of your sins is going to bring new life. And that's why the promise is not just that when you are repenting and baptizing the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the this, this promise is also you will receive the Holy Spirit. Every single person that has their sins forgiven in Christ receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's brand new. Brand new. First day of the church, brand new. The Spirit of God was only indwelling 120 people at that moment. Which was more than has ever happened, by the way. 72, 73 was the max back in numbers. And then we have little instances of one, two, three people, two people, one, one, two, one. That's kind of been the history of it. And then for 500 years, nobody And then John the Baptist, and Jesus, and John the Baptist's excitement in utero, the Holy Spirit spreads to his mother, Elizabeth. Like It's just this remarkable back and forth and pulling, and during the ministry of Jesus, one, just Jesus, from his baptism all the way to his ascension, and as soon as he goes to heaven, the Father sends the Holy Spirit. And as we learned on the morning of Pentecost, split between 120 people. And as we're about to see, verse 40, with many other words, words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Here he refers to the nation of Israel. Their whole generation. Now, I want you to think for a second. People that are in Jerusalem for Pentecost did not come for Pentecost. Pentecost. They did not travel from Persia, from Libya, and Egypt just for Pentecost. They came for Passover and stayed. Which means, what do you think the reality is that these people witnessed, not just the day of Pentecost, but also the crucifixion of Jesus? Extraordinarily high. That all of them, if not more than 90% of them, were not only aware of what was going on, but were part of it. The same for coming into Jerusalem. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Five days later, calling out, crucify him. 50 days later, staying there repenting of this sin and receiving the Holy Spirit. Which means there are people standing there that were also witnesses to the cross, witnesses to the resurrection. In fact, we learn from Paul that it wasn't just the 12 who saw the resurrected Christ for all this time, but it was over 500 people he says to the church in Corinth. He says, you want to go check these things? Go interview them. It's one of the great things about the New Testament written during the age of disproof. You, you have doubts? They're all still alive. Did 500 people see something wrong all at the same time? Go check. Go check. See what happened. It wasn't even just that Jesus had ascended. It wasn't even just these things. It was that the message was being handed over to the disciples, and now it's theirs to send out. He he bears witness uh Uh, This is Peter bearing witness to the crowd and continues to exhort them. And the the summing up of his message is, you need salvation because this generation is crooked and you are currently part of it. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. Now the Holy Spirit... Is not just in 120 people, but in 3,120 people, approximately. Now we don't ever have the accurate number ever again, but that shows that shows the reality is that it doesn't matter how many, and it doesn't matter how fast. There's nothing more that's needed. There's not some like special, uh, you know, unction, or there's not some special. Um, uh, anointing that we have to give to people. There's not some class we have to take to learn to actualize the Holy Spirit. None of that. The Holy Spirit does what he will. And this is exactly what Jesus said during his ministry in John 3. The Spirit goes where he wills, just like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. Here, what do we have with the Spirit? You can't see the Spirit. Boy, can you see his effects. Yes, sir? Is that the 3,000, would that be of the, the whole... Uh, different tribes of the 120 That's, or, or the people that he was talking to, who was that? all the people that he was talking to from all, over. from all over the place yeah and and as far as for the 12 tribes the 12 tribes the vast majority of them were lost to history we don't god knows who's in those tribes we don't right. um so uh there so we'll we'll know some of the some of them like Benjamin and those who were in Judea, but uh, like, you won't know who necessarily um, someone... Yeah, I, was, I was asking about you know, the, the 120 there from all over the place. The 120 were usually were those who were living in Jerusalem and Judea in that area. The 3,000 were those who had traveled in for Passover. And because this Passover was such a unique Passover, um, you know, darkness over the land, moon turning to blood, and... Nobody can see anything. That's a unique one. Earthquakes and, you know, Uncle Bob walking out of the tomb. Like, it's been a weird Passover. (laughs) Well, that was the thing. Those who walked out of the tombs and presented themselves to the leaders after the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ were not old Old Testament saints. This is Uncle Bob who died last year is now walking into Jerusalem again because Jesus died. (laughs) <laughs> like that is mind blowing stuff so the people that came for passover and all the festivities for that stuck around cuz there's like now there's now there's talks that Jesus himself keeps appearing to people some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus some of his disciples in an upper room now he's talking to these and and Paul says by the time he writes to the Corinthians he says After all this was said and done, we tallied up how many he had actually talked to that saw all of this, and it was over 500 people over the course of the time between his resurrection and the day of Pentecost. It's just such a remarkable thing, and then to see that when Christ leaves, his disciples finally learn what he meant by, it's actually better for you if I leave because I'm sending the Spirit. You you do not understand the strength of what is going to be uh, coming to you, Going to bring life. You can't make that happen. So at this point, you' saying this this is where the gospel was available to all, everywhere. Right. Yep. Right. So now it's going to take time. We don't have the internet. People have to travel back to their homes. Uh, you don't have phones. You don't have. I mean, the quickest way to travel was by donkey, and they don't run. So, right? Yes. There's no. Yeah. There's there's, there's none of that. Um, and so you will see that the the focus of the church immediately goes to learning what in the world has just happened. Look at verse forty-two. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, those, that's that's a. Uh, Four foundation stones of a healthy church, by the way, if you ever want to know. Uh, The apostles' teaching, as we know now, is in the scriptures. And fellowship is coming together. And the breaking of bread, communion, and praying. Now, I mean, there's all sorts of things to do this, right? Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, there's a lot of things that Luke does not include in this. But he just simply says the same thing that John says about Jesus' ministry. There's so many things that they did that I'm not going to write it all down. You just got to understand, they all saw it. You want to go and talk to them about that? There's not only 500 people that witnessed the resurrected Christ. There's thousands and thousands of people that witnessed the ministry of the apostles early on. Signs and wonders that are outside of any normal sphere. This is what the Holy Spirit was doing. And one of the effects was that all who had believed were together and had all things in common. In other words, they held their possessions with open hands. If there was need, they met it without even thinking of it. Why not? In their minds, we're nearing the end of the world. Who, who, who cares? If i got to sell a field to help my brother because you know, his ship just wrecked in a storm, I'm not even going to think about it. We'll just serve one another. Why not? This is where they go with this. If anyone, uh, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need... Day by day, they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Look at, look at the main focus of the Holy Spirit. is not just signs and wonders, but a complete reversal of how we interact with the world. Giving them grateful hearts, gladness, generosity with one another, and praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Welcome to the birth of the church. There's no set structure in place outside of the apostles. The apostles are going to make the structure for the church. That's the elders and the deacons, by the way. The the apostles are going to set the way in which the church does things. They're actually going to move Sabbath to Sunday to commemorate the resurrection of Christ so that we don't ever forget that the only reason we meet together is because Christ has risen from the dead. They, They move when we bring things together. It's not just any day. We'll see it even in the New Testament text. Bring your money together on the first day of the week. Then carry on uh, the rest of yourself the other six days of the week in service to one another and at your, uh, at your profession. And then we have a miracle that Luke includes. All many signs and wonders that they were doing through the power of the Spirit, and Luke doesn't even list them. And then all of a sudden we get this, Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Uh, and a man lame from birth was being carried. Uh, by the way, the ninth hour is 3 p.m. The Jewish day starts at 6 a.m., night starts at 6 p.m., day starts at 6 a.m. So this would be 3 p.m. A man lame from birth. Now, that's very important. This is not an injury that he just needs to get over, this is a man who has never walked which means he's never balanced. He's never had muscles that built up. You're talking about a man whose, whose legs look like skin and bone. That's it. There's no muscles. There's no nothing. This man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, now we're, we're not here saying the exact way that Peter and John do things is how we need to do things. But I want to focus our attention on the fact that all sorts of possessions, money and elsewise, were flowing around the church. And they were not out there just giving money to the poor. Want to point that out. Any single time you see service and alms being given, it's given in service to another Christian in the New Testament. I defy us to find anything else. And here Peter and John say, This is not what I have to give you. It's not because Peter and John didn't have silver and gold. They didn't have silver and gold to give to him. Do with that what you will. Verse six, but Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And now watch this. Immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. No going to the gym. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Because that's what happens when, yeah, the turning in the feet, when you don't have any strength, they grow differently. They're not, you know, when we walk, it forms them to be flat and and focused. But if you don't, they curl up, just like Jesus with the man with the withered hand. This isn't just someone who's paralyzed in an accident that we can say, oh, maybe his, you know, his back, you know, uh, stop pinching his, you know, I don't even know how that works, his spinal cord or anything like this. None of that. This is creation. Right, right. So this is really important because if you have read... The book of Luke. And if you've read Mark and you've read John, you know that when Jesus healed the paralytic and one of the most uh, flashy of all of his miracles, he told him to get up, take up his bed, walk and go home. And the man went walking home. Luke specifically includes the ramping up of this because he points out the specificity of it. He was lame from birth, could never walk. Everyone had to carry him everywhere. He's never once stood up in a day of his life. Not just paralyzed, completely lame. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, go ahead. Yeah, that's where he put it. It wasn't towards Peter and John. Right. Which is the outcome of the message is not that the leader will be praised, it is that God will be praised. Right. And this is, this is how the Holy Spirit, because what does the Holy Spirit focus everybody's attention on Christ. Up. Not to the leader, not to the local, nothing. Directly up. And, and this man, uh, and what a, what a person to choose to do this miracle to. This is a man who is lame since birth, literally sits at the beautiful gate, which is the most common entrance at the temple in Jerusalem. Everyone knew him. Everyone recognized him. Everyone knew he would never walk. This isn't a matter of training or physical therapy. This is a man who will never, ever walk. He's there daily, every day. Everyone knows him. Everyone knows his face. Everyone knows exactly what's going on. And all of a sudden, this man is leaping and jumping and praising God and the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name saved him in this manner. And the outcome is verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they all recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement as to what had happened to him. And he clung to Peter and John. All the people were utterly astonished. They ran together to, uh, to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the temple, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Now, how many people throughout history have tried to argue that their piety has brought about miracles? Nope. The Holy Spirit does what he does. Peter, seven weeks ago, was denying he even knew Christ. Okay? Realize this. Realize this. It says, this is not our own power of piety. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. Those are, by the way, deity titles. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. <laughs> it's not, this is not... Hey, do you need a cool place to attend? We all meet in the temple later, have some bread with us. This is, you literally killed the author of life himself, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith. That is, through Jesus Christ, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Welcome to being witnesses to the work of Christ. That is remarkable stuff. You acted in ignorance, he continues to tell them. Um, I don't want to skip this. Let's just beeline through it because we're getting to chapter 4. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That's still applicable today. Repent, that God may send Christ at the end of all times for the refreshing of this world. That this salvation is not just to bring life to us, it is going to bring life to all of creation. New heavens and new earth. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Here he's quoting from Deuteronomy. You shall listen to him. In whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the, uh, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and from those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Singular is the word offspring. There's going to be one that comes from Abraham that will bless all the nations of the earth. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The implication is he's not going to stop here. Today, the Holy Spirit, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the message of his salvation is in Jerusalem. It's about to leave Jerusalem and go to Judea. Then it's going to leave there and go to Samaria. Then it's going to go to your enemies. Then it's going to go to the barbarians. Then it's going to go to people you hate. And it's going to save those, everyone whom the Lord is calling to himself. Now, you can imagine this doesn't sit well with uh, the rulers. Peter and John are called before the council. Verse 1, chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed (laughs) because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, the Sadducees particularly did not uh, have anything in their uh, recognition outside of the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they held to no resurrection from the dead because that hadn't been taught yet. Uh, And so the Sadducees dismissed the resurrection. They ridiculed Christ for saying there was a resurrection from the dead. They didn't hold to Daniel, which clearly expresses the resurrection from the dead. They just basically are the old stinkers. We all know those. Uh, teaching the people, proclaiming Jesus of the resurrection. Okay, verse 3. They arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Yeah, you you got to get home and eat, right? But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, that's not a number of the amount of people in the church. That's just the men. So now we've got 5,000 men, besides women and children. We know that the amount of women was significant, uh, even on the day of Pentecost, um, probably upwards of half the people that were in the upper room. Kind of remarkable stuff, um, especially at this time period. So now we're probably talking about 12, 20, 25,000 people that were in the church. Now, this is not a small movement in Jerusalem. That is huge. We're still in Jerusalem. It's enormous. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, basically thought we'd put this Jesus thing down. With Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who, war, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the... By the way, uh, Luke is a tremendous historian. Just by including all those four names, we can date this almost perfectly. Uh, which is why we also have the date for the resurrection and crucifixion and everything else. Uh, is because of Luke's historical retelling. Uh, We didn't even know until the past hundred years that both Annas and Caiaphas served uh, as high priests jointly uh, from history. We didn't know that until we dug up references to that because everyone was ridiculing it, saying there's not two high priests, that's not possible. And then we dug up, yeah, well, yeah, they were. Always amazing how that happens. Verse 7, when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, what power Notice nobody is dispelling the power is there. Nobody can turn it down. I mean, literally the guy who sits outside their office, who's been begging for alms for all these years, is now jumping and leaping around the temple, praising God through Jesus Christ. I thought we had done this, right? We don't want to deal with this anymore. By what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, Said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. Now, if you want to know what the Holy Spirit is interested in saying, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter to them, which is why it's in Scripture and why it's denoted off as something the Holy Spirit has said. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you then and to all the people of Israel. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you all crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by, uh, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Every prophetic imagery is included here. Remarkable stuff. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. End of message. (laughs) He answered their question, not in the way that they wanted to. Um, The reality is, what words he's using are not natural words. This is not Peter. This is not Peter just having a great day. What did Jesus promise to them? When they drag you before you, uh, drag you before them, do not think about what you're going to say ahead of time. I will send the Holy Spirit and he will give you the words to say when you're being examined. Here, Luke is saying, welcome to the first fulfillment of that. Peter did not sit here and go, okay, 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 okay. Let, me, let me make sure I include the gospel, let me make, you know, something that we kind of have to do today. Peter is an uneducated fisherman that has a Galilean accent that nobody wants to listen to speak. He comes out with this absolute perfection. And to the astonishment of them all, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. Now the effect is God is approaching everyone where they are. Educated people by using uneducated men. Remarkable stuff. Uh, Skeptics by using someone that they walked past and ignored and didn't give alms to. They'll heal him and off he goes. They rec- or, excuse me, uh, they were astonished end of verse 13. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Basically, I know these guys, uh, you know some of them were like, we were in Gethsemane and they were standing there with Jesus. We know that this is one of the disciples. John himself was standing next to the cross while the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the rulers were crucifying Jesus. John is sitting there at the foot of the cross. And that's where Mary and all that happens, right? So they know these guys. They're just like, these are like the ringleaders. And the Sadducees and the rulers here are looking at them going, these guys are uneducated. We thought we took out the rabbi and that would be good enough. But the reality is that they're continuing something. And so they recognized, end of verse 13, that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, God is just removing every single argument that they could possibly have and just presenting them with Christ and their own sin. That's it. And there's nothing that they can say. There's nothing that they can do. And so all they do is they say, um, uh, when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what are we supposed to do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them that is evident to all the inhabitants of How far has it gone so far? Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that this stupid message doesn't spread any further among the people, let's warn them that they don't speak anymore in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you're going to be judging that. We cannot but speak of what we have seen, eyes, and heard, ears. When they had further threatened them, we really, really mean it. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all, were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign was heal, uh, of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Everyone has seen this guy for decades. By the way, let me just put out to you, Jesus absolutely walked past this man and did not heal him. He sits in the beautiful gate every day. Jesus, who had the ability to heal him, walked past him many, many, many times throughout his ministry. Didn't say anything to him, didn't look at him, Didn't promise to him something's coming. Nothing. Didn't give him anything. His paralyzed state was for a purpose that nobody could perceive during Jesus' ministry. And here is his purpose. What would be riding high on your mind if you were Peter and John and the rest of the apostles is that none of this is accidental. None of this. Even as they look back on the ministry of Christ, the miracles that he was doing, they, they, were, they were showing a reality of a hope that none of them had ever seen with their own eyes. Speaking of the way in which the world works, the promise of resurrection, the refreshment of the entire earth, this message of Christ is going to bring that about someday. Now to their thought, perhaps it was going to be 50 years off or 40 years off or 100 years off. And so they say, What do we have to do? We need to go to Jerusalem. We have a message to send to Judea. We have to go to our sworn enemies, Samaritans. And then we have to go to the Greek speaking world in the Diaspora, all about the world, the uttermost parts of the ends of the earth. In that mindset, listen to this prayer that all the apostles give. It's one of the most magnificent prayers in Scripture. When they were released, verse 23, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together and listened to this prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of, our, of Father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Yeah, this has been said for a thousand years, talking about Christ. Listen to this prayer. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Look what they're praying for. They're not praying for safety. They're praying that the message that was given to them would be spoken forward with boldness and it would go exactly where he sends out. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, when they had prayed, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled, the intention is, filled to the max with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, which is the main force of all of this. If you were Peter, John, James, Thaddeus, and all of these who were gathered together, the very... that would stick out to you evidenced by this prayer is that not a bit of this is by accident I mean Peter just came back from being brought before the rulers in Jerusalem there in the temple with irrefutable proof that the name in which they were speaking was (laughs) legitimate the man standing there with them and he comes back and he realizes that we're not alone in this God did not leave us alone. Christ did not abandon us. He's given us a job to do that we naturally can't do and he has sent the Holy Spirit and it is indeed better for us that Christ is gone and the Holy Spirit has come. Now we are his witnesses. Now we are carrying on this ministry. And what is the ministry focused on? It's not the signs and wonders. The ministry is not even focused on the miracles. That's just the irrefutable help. The focus is on the message to speak the word of God with boldness because they're going to reach opposition everywhere. So their main focus is on this reality that the sovereign Lord who made all things has carried these things out, that at the at the center of all of this, even the crucifixion of Christ, which was the outcome of many people's sins, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, that were focusing all of their sinful desires to destroy Christ. Every bit of that was intended by God himself to bring about the salvation of his people. I mean, look at at the language they use in verse 28. All of these people, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, all the peoples of Israel, they came together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They don't feel alone They don't feel like they're in a cultural moment that is by accident. They were made for this. They're supposed to be there. They were supposed to go before the Sanhedrin. They were supposed to be in this upper room praying with them again. And so what do they pray for? Lord, look upon their threats. And they don't pray for safety. They pray for boldness. We are weak. And only in your spirit will we be made strong. Yes, that's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. That is the type of prayer we need now. Too often do we pray that the suffering goes away or the threats dissipate, that we just stay safe and healthy and everything's okay. I'm not saying those are wrong prayers, I'm saying they're incomplete. Because the apostles are focused on the message of Christ and the boldness that it is required to preach that, because the reality is that in the in the world, the fallen world in which we live, the first thing to crumble is our boldness it is and 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 when you see that go, you will see people apologizing for what God said or apologizing for what his word says or trying to change the gospel message to make it easy to believe, or try to water down something, or try to make people feel good, when in reality, we don't see the apostles doing any of that. We see Correct. Correct. Everyone was offended. Everyone was offended. In fact, Jesus said, you know, blessed is he who doesn't take offense to me. By the way, woe to him who is offended by me. Right? If, If you do not want to, you know, Uh, lose even your own life, you want to preserve your life, don't follow me. I mean, he says it explicitly in Luke 18, don't, don't follow me. If you are looking to preserve your own life or all your relationships and your relationship to father, mother, brother, sister, or anything else, even your own life is more important than following me, just don't follow me because it may indeed require all of those things from you. It's rough language. And the apostles don't shy back from it, but they know their weakness to shy back from it. And so their main prayer request in the book of Acts is give us boldness. Give us boldness. We have the right message. We know we have the right message. We know we have the right Savior. We know he's the hope of the world. And if this is going to go forward, we don't want our weaknesses to get in the way of the message. Notice that even as they pray to the Lord, they recognize it's not their, their power or their piety that brings about these signs and wonders. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is you doing all of this. Now, I will simply put forward, this was never normative for the church we see the flash of this happening at the beginning of Acts and in the midpoint of Acts, and we see it tapering away. We see it culminate. I would say the culmination of such signs and wonders happened in Ephesus. Makes sense that it would be in Ephesus. We'll talk about it when we get there. But literally a handkerchief that touched Paul would be carried away to sick people and heal them. Right? That's that's crazy. That's never happened. That didn't even happen with Jesus. Like, That's never happened. But here we have the reality that the main thing that they are focused on is is the message that's going out. When when we talk about these signs and wonders, uh, one of the biggest errors of the modern church is trying to make the book of Acts uh, the prescription for how we do church. It's a huge mistake. Because... God is not interacting with his church in 2023 as if it was the year 30 AD. It's not. It's not. We're in a completely different culture, different time, different period. We have the scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. Now, they devoted themselves to that and the apostles' teachings, but we actually have the apostles' teachings in our hands. We have physical copies of the Bible, which means the signs and the wonders that God is performing is typically through that which is on our hearts and the hearts of those who are Christians, right? All of this this kind of stuff is continuing to go along. We shouldn't be surprised to see that the way that God interacted with the early church has not been the way he's interacted throughout all of history. I think there's a lot of people that kind of look back and go, man, I wish we could just get back to the first century church, everything would be okay. Go read the book of Corinthians, right? Go, both of them. Just First Corinthians, though, and, and try to drink some milk before you go to bed. It'll give you indigestion. And they had the Holy Spirit to a level that nobody else did. And they were the most messed up, crazy town and church that we know of in the first century. And yet they had, they had the works of the Holy Spirit to a level that nobody else had. It wasn't about power and piety. It wasn't about something that we have just the right training and play. You cannot learn how to use the Holy Spirit. They're not going to class for this, right? Peter and John did not go to class you know, learning how to heal a man who is born lame. The Spirit goes where he wills and does what he does. He is in charge. That is exactly what they pray here. You're going to do these signs and wonders. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. Just give us boldness. Just give us boldness so that we don't mess up the message that's traveling. Yes, sir. Yeah. To it. Yep. They heard it and then they raised their voice to God with one accord. Yep. And said. Yeah, so there's two possibilities here. One is amazing, and the other one's pretty awesome. So I'll give you the pretty awesome one first. The pretty awesome one is they took turns saying different sentences, and they were all of a single heart and recognizing the same thing. The amazing one is that they all said this in unison. As the spirit gave him utterance i seeing as Peter just came back from giving words that weren 't his, that the Holy Spirit spoke through him yeah. how, how can you can't anticipate there's no training for that right that would be the opinion I have that 's not a common opinion but knowing what the holy spirit has been doing through the story and through the ministry that he is continuing to bear out i would say the amazing one is the opportunity or is the is the uh, opportune interpretation well, they were with the holy spirit, right it was, again it came upon even at right so i mean like you said it was such great holy spirit within right to speak right so i i liken this to um, uh, I don't want to speak, I really don't want to speak in such crass terms about the Holy Spirit. Um, For for an analogy, it's very concentrated at this point in the ministry of the gospel. Mm -hmm. He's just in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. We have grown up in an era where he's, and this is, is, I don't want to use the crass term, but I don't know, very diluted throughout the world, Dilute. It doesn't mean that he's not doing things. I actually believe repentance and faith for a a person who's dead in trespasses and sins is the height of all miracles. And that is his main focus today. Uh, I believe that that is so miraculous that none can actually come to saving faith in Christ unless the Holy Spirit makes it. Bring them to life again. Regeneration happens before faith. Uh, in in the order of salvation, because it's the Spirit's working. It's not just their conviction. It is bringing them to life again, and that new life trusts in God and turns from sin. Right? That is is the, the inevitability of how this works. So I believe those types of miracles are happening every day in the salvation of people. Whether or not the external, outward miracles are happening, I can say I've never seen one. But I will say this. I would not be surprised that God would surprise us with something like that still. On on some front line somewhere that we've never seen and has never heard the gospel. Wouldn't surprise me to be surprised. How's that? Um, I will say this. Every instance I've ever seen of supposed speaking in tongues looks nothing like the scriptures. Nothing like either Acts 2 or 1 Corinthians 12 or 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Doesn't mean it doesn't happen today. But I will say this. When we understand what the purpose of the speaking in tongues is and that is to get the message of the gospel to all peoples and languages it's kind of hard to then say well now it's become a personal prayer language especially since we know the origins of that are not the history of the church but well america in 1907 but you'll have to learn about that in church history class <laughs> um, so so as far as as far as for all that's concerned it's you know and it's, it's very hard for us to look at that uh, and say that there's anything but the ministry of the Holy Spirit going on because these things are verifiable. They're standing in front of them. It's, it's undeniable. And, and so if, if somebody is saying, you know, I have all these charismatic gifts or all of these, these high-end gifts and stuff like that, great. Verify them. I say this about faith healers all the time. All of you are lying. Yeah. All of you are lying. You, you can raise the dopamine levels and the adrenaline of somebody who has arthritis and they can think it's gone and you just healed them. Follow up in two days. I want to see a person lame from birth instantly gain muscles and balance. Like, we all know who this person is. I want to see somebody who is blind that we all know gain sight. We don't see anything like this. We don't see anything like it. All the reports are hearsay. I want to see it. If you want to claim that those things are happening in the church today, the thing is, is every time we hear about it, it's always third hand, fourth hand, fifth hand. It's never first hand ever. I, I have talked to people who have claimed it's normative, and I said, great, it's normative, great. Have you ever for personally seen it? Well, no. Yeah, where are the witnesses? Because that is, for the book of Acts, that is absolutely required. If, if you have things happening and there's no witnesses, it's not the Holy Spirit. That's what he is involved with all the time. and That's why, for instance, as a Christian, it is impossible to be a Christian in good fellowship without being a part of a group of other Christians. What is happening in your life must be witnessed by other Christians. We are witnesses of one another because where's the Holy Spirit? Largely at work today. But in our lives, in our hearts, and in our desires, I can see virtue stemming up from somebody who I know their base personality isn't capable of that. That's awesome stuff. To see kindness come out of somebody who has a hot temper To see self-control take over them as we watch them grow year after year after year. Remarkable stuff. Amazing stuff. That's not just normal things. We know what normal people age like when they have no self-control. We also get to watch Christians grow up and see the fruit come out of their lives. We're going to stop there in chapter four. The book of Acts just ramps up from here. And we are going to be here a little bit longer. Obviously, the book of Acts is the main focal point of the work of the Holy Spirit. In reality, it, while we historically call it the Acts of the Apostles, it really just should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because this is this is the story of him going out into the world. And so, oh boy, it's ten 12. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this day. We're thankful, Father, that... Um, you continually work the miracle uh, on those who need to be brought to life again. Father, for those of us who were dead in trespasses and sins and you raised us to walk in the newness of life with Christ, you gave us ears to hear the gospel. You gave us eyes to see the truth of the scriptures, the person of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, not for comfort, We pray not for times of ease, we pray for boldness, we pray for faithfulness, we pray it in your Son's name. Amen.